Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schock. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is www.fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. I'm excited today to welcome listeners in Ashland, Virginia, WHAN, 1430 AM and 102.9 FM, is now carrying Religion for Life. If you'd like to hear Religion for Life in your city, uh, contact us. Check out the website, religionforlife.com, and get in touch with me. Excited to have Religion for Life all over the country. Religion for Life is a program that looks at religion from a critical or educational point of view. So we have scholars from a wide variety of perspectives, looking at religion from many different viewpoints. For example, today, we're going to look at the Bible. Now, when I grew up in church, I was told that the Bible was the Word of God from start to finish. Every word of the Bible was as God intended it. It was revealed to us as a divine product. Since then, I've learned a number of things. I've learned that the Bible is actually a human product, uh, created by human beings in their own time and in their own setting. And one of the ways to help us understand the Bible as a human product is to look at it uh, historically and to understand how it was formed and how it was made. What would the Bible look like if we saw it not in order as it's presented to us, but in the order in which the books were written? My guest is Marcus J. Borg. Dr. Borg is canon theologian at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon, internationally known in both academic and church circles as a biblical and Jesus scholar. He was under chair of religion and culture in the philosophy department at Oregon State University until his retirement in 2007. He's the author of, of about 20 books, including Jesus, A New Vision, and the best-selling Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, uh, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time, The Heart of Christianity. Uh, in 2011, he published Speaking Christian, Why Christian Words Have Lost Their Meaning and Power and How They Can Be Restored, and his latest book, Evolution of the Word, The New Testament in the Order That the Books Were Written. Described by the New York Times as a leading figure in his generation of Jesus scholars, he's appeared on NBC's Today Show and Dateline, PBS's NewsHour, uh, NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross and several National Geographic programs. He's a fellow of the Jesus Seminar and as the national chair of the Historical Jesus Section of the Society of Biblical Literature. Welcome, Dr. Borg, to Religion for Life. Great to be with you and great to be talking to folks in Tennessee and Virginia. Your new book is Evolution of the Word, the New Testament in the order that the books were written. Uh, how did you come to write this book? The answer, I think, is that uh, uh, a bishop of the Lutheran Church, Bishop Lowell Erdahl, who's been a friend and a colleague for about 20 years, kept insisting that I must do this book. And he actually ended up writing the foreword for the book in which he talked about how he would make sure that every congregation had this book, every confirmation student would read this book, every seminarian would read this book, and so forth. And uh, as far as we, meaning the publisher and I know, uh, there's never been a chronological New Testament before. Uh, and as you mentioned in your introduction, a chronological New Testament prints the books of the New Testament 
in the historical sequence in which they were written. So, for example, rather than beginning with the four Gospels, as the familiar New Testament does, it begins with seven letters written by Paul in the 50s of the first century. And then the first Gospel uh, doesn't come along until about the year 70. And the first Gospel is not Matthew, but is Mark. And um, Matthew comes along a decade or two after Mark. The book is both the same as the familiar New Testament, meaning the same 27 documents, but it's different in that, as I've already mentioned, it prints them in chronological sequence. I remember when I first learned that the Hebrew scriptures were in a different order from the Christian Old Testament. Um, and the same books uh, from the Protestant canon to the uh, Hebrew scriptures, but it really made a difference that how they ended uh, with the Christian scriptures ending, or the Christian Old Testament ending with Malachi, but the Hebrew scriptures ending with Chronicles. It really made for a different story. Um, and I was wondering uh, if that was true as we read um, the New Testament chronologically as opposed to reading it from its canonical order. Is it a different story? It is in some ways, or at least one sees different things in the New Testament. Let me do a quick comparison and contrast. The familiar New Testament, of course, begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then ends with the book of Revelation with the other 21 documents, 22 documents actually, coming in between. And one can see why that makes considerable sense. Jesus is the central figure uh, in the formation of early Christianity, of course, so it makes sense that the New Testament begins with the stories of Jesus. And the book of Revelation is about the second coming of Jesus and what we commonly think of as the end of the world. So it also makes sense that it comes at the end. They're like bookends for the New Testament as a whole. Uh, in the chronological New Testament, uh, not only do the seven letters of Paul come first, but the book of Revelation does not come last. It actually is about right in the middle with 12 of the New Testament documents being later than the book of Revelation. So instead of this nice symmetry of the Gospels and the first coming of Jesus and the book of Revelation and the second coming of Jesus, we encounter a New Testament that clearly comes out of the early Christian communities that produced it. And, uh, for example, the last document in a chronological New Testament is the second letter of Peter. And that tells us what an early Christian community from which that letter was written or to which that letter was written was thinking about things around the middle of the second century. And if I can add one other thing, um, starting with the seven genuine letters of Paul, makes it clear that there were vibrant Christian communities throughout uh, the world of the Roman Empire before any of the Gospels were written. I think many Christians think that the Gospels produced early Christianity when in fact the Gospels are the product of these uh, early Christian communities several decades after the death of Jesus. So in one sense, it's the same story, 
but we see that story as the testimony of these early Christian communities. Not only their testimony to Jesus, but also um, it provides windows into the lives of these vibrant early Christian communities. So we get much more in touch with early Christianity as a community movement. And if I may add one thing here, um, uh, these communities were intimate, meaning quite small, deeply intentional, uh, and uh, the communities of Paul, for example, uh, some of them may have been as small as 15 or 20 people. And among the reasons that we know that is that we know something about the physical space in which they met. Uh, they met in um, uh, retail shops or small manufacturing shops in the major cities of the Roman Empire. And most of those shops were physically only 10 feet by 20 feet, maybe 15 feet by 25 feet. Mm. And so you begin to imagine, well, how many people could be in there? And so we get glimpses of these deeply committed intimate, intentional early Christian communities. My guest is uh, Dr. Marcus Borg, author of Evolution of the Word, the New Testament in the order that the books were written. And you're listening to Religion for Life. Uh, Evolution of the Word is, is an interesting title in a sense, meaning the Word, um, presumably uh, Jesus, uh, or maybe it's the Bible, uh, but evolves uh, as we look through the New Testament chronologically. Yes, and the word evolution in the title does refer uh, both to the evolution of Jesus as the Word of God, meaning early Christian understandings of Jesus and his significance developed over time. And the word word in the title also refers to the New Testament as part of the Word of God, the Old Testament, of course, being the rest of it. And so we see not only the development of early Christian understanding of Jesus and his significance, but also development within the documents themselves. And one of the more striking things that emerges is that generally, the later the document, the more conservative it becomes. Uh, Jesus and Paul were both very radical figures but within several decades of the end of Jesus' life, and I'm thinking now of seven, eight, nine, ten decades, not just two or three, uh, we find many parts of the early Christian movement beginning to accommodate themselves to the values of conventional culture or dominant culture, once again. So, for example, uh, Paul proclaims the absolute equality of male and female within the Christian movement, and that was true within his communities as well. And then in some of the documents written early in the second century, and I'm thinking in particular now of First Timothy, uh, we have the subordination of women reintroduced. You can see the same thing with the issue of slavery. Uh, in the seven genuine letters of Paul, 
it's clear that a Christian master may not own a Christian slave, but then by the later documents of the New Testament, slavery once again is okay, and the issue is that slaves are to be treated reasonably well, but slavery itself is not prohibited. So there is this development from radical early Christianity to moderate or conservative uh, Christianity to kind of a reactionary Christianity by the time the latest document in the New Testament is written. And that kind of accommodation of radical Christian values to conventional culture happens again and again and again throughout Christian history. We have a radical figure like Francis of Assisi uh, around the year 1200, and within a hundred years, the Franciscan order that he founded has become prosperous enough so that even though individual Franciscan monks are committed to poverty, the radicalism of the early movement is very much muted. So in a sense, this movement is is tamed, and Jesus becomes uh, more palatable uh, to the larger culture as the New Testament evolves. Exactly. And, exactly. and there's another sense, too, um, and maybe we can, uh, this is a somewhat of a complicated issue, I, I suppose, but there's a sense in which when we, if the first letter that you put was First Thess- Thessalonians, and it's pretty apocalyptic. In other words, there's an end coming. And uh, the question might be whether Jesus himself, I suppose, and I know scholars disagree on that, uh, whether or not he understood himself as part of a, an apocalyptic movement. But that movement, as the New Testament evolves, has to change and adapt too with this end not coming. Um, that's right. And the latest document in the New Testament, which I've mentioned, is Second Peter. Uh, that offers an explanation as to why the second coming hasn't happened by saying that in the Lord's eyes a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So we did expect it would be soon, but we probably were confusing um, our time with God's time and so forth. So you can see a um, waning, if you will, of the expectation of a return of Jesus in the very near future from their point in time. To go back to whether Jesus himself expected what we commonly and somewhat misleadingly call the end of the world in his generation, I'm among those Jesus scholars who think that the belief in a rapid return of Jesus is a post-Easter development within early Christianity. I think Jesus' own passion was uh, the coming of the kingdom of God and calling people to participate in that coming. And then I think the notion that he himself would return emerges after Easter, uh, after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. So I don't think that apocalyptic expectation goes back to Jesus himself, but it's very strong in uh, some of the documents in the New Testament. By the way, uh, you mentioned 1 Thessalonians Mm -hmm. as uh, the earliest document. That document is the one in which Paul most emphatically expresses his conviction that Jesus will return soon. 
by the uh, later of the seven letters attributed to Paul, I'm sorry, of the seven genuine letters of Paul, that expectation is muted a little bit. So it seems that even for Paul, that expectation begins to become something he's less certain about. I remember learning 13 letters of Paul, seven are believed to be, you know, consensus, authentic, the historical Paul and the others are disputed. But when you really see them lined out uh, in order, uh, it, it makes really an obvious difference between the seven letters of Paul and what Bart Ehrman calls the forged letters of, uh, of Timothy, um, not being by Paul at all. And that really makes us look again uh, at the Bible from a critical point of view. Uh, that's right. And um, for some people, I suspect critical might be a negative word. Uh, I find um, the critical point of view, in a positive sense of that word, to mm -hmm. be enormously illuminating. We understand so much more when we take what I call a historical hyphen metaphorical approach to the New Testament and to the Bible as a whole. And historical means simply ancient text in ancient context. And the word metaphorical, of course, means so much of the Bible was never meant to be taken literally. It's all meant to be taken seriously. But to take something seriously is very different from taking it literally. With historical, metaphorical uh, view, the Bible becomes uh, a human product, perhaps, as opposed to a divine revealed product reveals, in a sense, what people thought about Jesus rather than um, Jesus himself. Uh, yes, I think that's right. It reveals what people thought about Jesus. And I would go on to say um, the Bible matters enormously for Christians because it tells us what our spiritual ancestors in these ancient communities thought and experienced tells us about their life with God and what they thought life with God involved. But to jump from that to it being the revealed, inerrant will of God is something the Bible itself does not do. The Bible never claims for itself that it's inerrant. There is a passage in First Timothy that speaks of Scripture as inspired by God, but there's a huge difference between inspired by God and having a divine guarantee to be inerrant, infallible, and literally true. That whole notion of inerrancy and infallibility and an insistence on literal interpretation is modern. It's the product of the last few hundred years. So um, uh, the Bible not only tells us how our spiritual ancestors saw things. But of course, for Christians, it is sacred scripture, by which I mean our spiritual ancestors declared this particular collection of documents to be the sacred scripture for this religious movement. As you put this together, these aren't dates that are unique to you. They are uh, consensus or majority uh, dating that uh, modern biblical scholars use, with, with one exception, uh, you depart from the consensus or the majority in your dating of Luke Acts, um, moving Acts from the 80s to 110 or 120. Um, 
makes it, it makes it a different kind of document, doesn't it? it reflects uh, Christianity of the second century as opposed to uh, an account of the first century. And I guess the second question I'll put to you as you can, to, uh, in your answer is, would you say that it makes us look at Acts as perhaps more of a book of legend as opposed to history? Well, <clears throat> I don't like the word uh, uh, legend. Okay. Because uh, it, it implies something kind of purely made up. I mean, we've got Paul Bunyan as a legend and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, I would prefer um, speaking of Acts as a kind of idealized history, meaning I think there is history in the Book of Acts. Sometimes we can check references in the Book of Acts against uh, other sources in uh, that world, and we know that the author knows something about the history of early Christianity. But I think the author of Acts, who's also the author of Luke, of course, is trying to present a picture of early Christian unity um, and a unified development so that the church of the second century seems to be the natural outgrowth of what was there in the 40s and 50s of the first century. And of course, Acts does report some conflicts, but they're resolved relatively easily, the classic example being the uh, conference in Jerusalem reported in the 15th chapter of Acts, in which the leaders of the Jerusalem community and uh, Paul and his associates agree that Gentile converts to this new movement, which is the Jewish movement, do not need to be circumcised and um, do not need to observe kosher food laws. And yet we know that was a controversy that continued for quite a while after the year 50. So I think of Acts more as an idealized history of early Christian unity. Well, one, one of the thing about moving uh, Luke and Acts uh, to a later date um, is as I wonder if this uh, would change our trust in the parables that are unique to Luke as going back to the historical Jesus. For example, Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, uh, the woman uh, looking for the coin, I think. Um, if we date Luke much later, do those parables now reflect second century concerns, or would you still say they go back to the historical Jesus? I think they go back to the historical Jesus. One of the things about a parable, and a parable, of course, is a story. They're enormously memorable. And therefore, for a parable, a story, to survive in the oral tradition for 40 years, 80 years, there's nothing really remarkable about that. And also, um, we, know, uh, we know that some of the parables of Jesus are very early, meaning they show up in Mark, they show up in a document called Q, which we think both Matthew and Luke used when they wrote their Gospels. And from the genuine parables of Jesus, it's, possibly to, it's possible to create what we in the Jesus Seminar called a voice print. Mm -hmm. uh, the analogy, of course, is to a fingerprint, uh, a voice print of the authentic voice of Jesus. And so the parables that are found only in Luke even though they're not written down, perhaps, until the early 2nd century, have the same voice print 
as the voice print we can discern in the undoubtedly earlier parables of Jesus. And, uh, you know, some of the greatest parables of Jesus, of course, are the parable of the Good Samaritan Mm -hmm. and the parable of the prodigal son. And um, it's uh, not only easy to imagine that Jesus initially told those stories, but also easy to imagine that they would be very, very memorable. You know, Jesus was an extraordinarily skillful oral teacher, and he used those forms of speech that stayed in memory, the great one-liners of him, of his, uh, which we call aphorisms, very memorable. So also with the short story that is the parable. My guest, uh, Marcus Borg, author of Evolution of the Word, the New Testament and the order the books were written. And as I read this book, I found it actually quite liberating to read, to kind of break open the canon and, and its order a little bit. And I was wondering if, if it might be possible to include as we, uh, what Gospel of Thomas or some of the other documents that uh, uh, might not have made the canon, uh, but might have been historically in that time period. What, what do you think about extra canonical uh, documents about the early Christian movement? I think the two earliest ones um, that, of course, aren't in the New Testament are the Gospel of Thomas, probably early 2nd century, and therefore maybe as early as uh, Luke and Acts, and uh, probably earlier than First and 2nd Timothy and Titus and 2nd uh, Peter and so forth. And the other one that didn't make it in the New Testament that is... Um, written during the New Testament period is a document called the Didache. That's actually Mm -hmm. a Greek word that means the teaching. And it's presented as the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, probably written around the year 100. And so if one were doing a book on early Christian documents in chronological sequence, both the Gospel of Thomas and the Didache would uh, come before half a dozen or more New Testament documents. But the publisher and I wanted this book to be the familiar New Testament, uh, what's known as the canonical New Testament. And so that's the reason for not including documents that didn't make it into the New Testament itself. And a final question for you, uh, Dr. Borg, is um, how do you um, hope that people will use this book, Evolution of the Word? It'll be used primarily, I think, in study groups within churches and in uh, classrooms, uh, both university and private college classrooms. I think it's a marvelous teaching device for understanding Uh, the emergence of early Christianity. And I think it's also uh, a marvelous teaching device for uh, understanding Jesus more clearly. To realize, for example, that um, the grand, exalted language that some of the documents use about Jesus as the light of the world, the bread of life, um, the Word become flesh, the Son of God, and so forth, that this is late first century, early Christian testimony to the significance that Jesus had come to have in their lives and their thought and their experience. And that 
grand, exalted language, as I'm referring to it, I think has more power as early Christian testimony to Jesus than if we try to imagine Jesus as a human figure of history using that language about himself. And so we began to understand that language like that isn't some kind of late forgery or mistake, but it is powerful witness and testimony to the meaning of Jesus. My guest has been Dr. Marcus Borg, author of Evolution of the Word, the New Testament in the order that the books were written. Uh, Dr. Borg, thank you for this book, and thank you for being with me on Religion for Life. I've enjoyed it very much, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life at our website, religionforlife.com. You'll find links to podcasts. Uh, also follow us on Facebook, iTunes, and Twitter. Be well.